to Between the Worlds. I'm your host, Amanda Yates Garcia. This season, we focus on the suit of pentacles, all about abundance, the earth, eroticism, and the underworld. Stay tuned and learn how to re-enchant your world with tarot, magic, and more. Quick note and an invitation before we dive in. I, Amanda Yates Garcia, am having a full moon ritual tomorrow, Friday, the 23rd of July at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's going to be on Zoom. This moon is known as the herb moon or the claiming moon. Traditionally, it's the moon where pagans harvest and bless their herbs. I also call it the visionary moon in honor of its transit through the sign of Aquarius. So please do come to my ritual. We'll be learning visioning techniques to help us access hidden strengths, apply our gifts, and vision a healthy future for ourselves and our communities and our world. And we'll be celebrating the pagan holiday of Lunasa. I hope you can join me. The ceremony is completely by donation. No one will be turned away for lack of funds. And the link is in the show notes. So hope you can join in. Greetings, listeners. On today's episode, we're talking with Tyson Yunkaporta, author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Tyson is a senior lecturer in Indigenous Knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne and is a member of the Appalachian Clan in Queensland, Australia. The main thesis of his book, Sand Talk, is that the teachings of Aboriginal culture can help us imagine a way to a sustainable future by emphasizing community and connection over individualism and fragmentation and by cultivating respect for the land. So in this episode, we talk about how Western, well, he calls them modern audiences, have a hunger to learn about indigeneity, like at conferences, for instance. But the modern world is not structured in a way that can allow it to take in indigenous forms of knowledge. In fact, he says, for instance, like at a conference that there'll be a welcome ceremony at the start and a dance at the end and everyone will go home happy, but none the wiser. Because usually when modern audiences seek out indigenous knowledge, they're looking at isolated practices, like for instance, controlled burns in the fire country of California. I'm sure you've all heard about this, where the indigenous people here would would burn the land uh, in order to prevent more serious wildfires from taking place, which is an amazing and important practice. But what we're not hearing about when we hear about that practice is the whole indigenous worldview and thought process behind that. And so a lot of the time, modern audiences will just be looking for little snacks or little items that can can save us, like, uh, you know, using controlled burns or you know, in California, planting the three sisters, beans and squash and corn together. But that's not taking in the whole indigenous worldview. And and that's what we're talking about today. So Tyson says, for instance, that we, meaning modern audiences, are shown an aboriginal dot painting 
And then we're implored to make sure that we include indigenous employment in our plans to double a city's population, quote unquote, sustainably within a few decades. But the thing about that is the indigenous worldview doesn't want to double the city's population within a few decades, sustainably or not. So we can see that the quote-unquote modern worldview and the indigenous worldview are often working at cross purposes. And yet, nevertheless, if we want life on earth to survive as we know it, at least for the time being, including indigenous thinking, or in fact, founding our thought process on indigenous thinking, according to Tyson, is, is going to be foundational to the survival of our species. Tyson suggests that indigenous thinking is relational. It requires long-term connection and commitment to the community and the land. In other words, it's not just about using didgeridoos or smudge sticks or wands or cauldrons, as we discuss in this episode. The objects that we use in our practice only point to a larger matrix of connectivity, and that matrix of connectivity is the true essence of indigenous thinking and ways of life. Now, before we leap into the episode, I want to clarify a few things. First of all, the concept of yarning, which Tyson introduces in his book. And for those of you who are not listening to this in Australia, it might be a a word that you've heard used before. I'm sure if you're Australian, you've heard it used a million times before. But this yarning is a kind of meandering conversation that builds relationships and shares information and entertains and digresses. It's not linear. And it's more of a, a process than a, an attack, let's say, from our ordinary means of conversation. It's different. And in that way, it's different from our ordinary means of conversation. So Tyson describes his process in the book, and and I would say also in the conversation, as subjective and fragmentary and always already out of date because it's always moving and shifting from campfire voice to academic voice in a way that might seem unstructured and really doesn't reflect the usual cause and effect type relations and conversation that we might normally expect. So in this conversation, we do not move in a straight line but I think you'll enjoy the ride. In relation to the suit of pentacles, which is this season's theme here on Between the Worlds, you might consider what we discussed in the Ace of Pentacles episode, how the pentacle is a sphere or a disc. Pentacles are not linear. In spheres, everything is connected to everything else. Every piece is connected to every other piece. You might ask yourself, how are the thought processes required to understand pentacles different than the thought processes required to understand the sword, for instance, if we're talking in tarot language here. I also wanted to say that initially our producer Carolyn broke this episode up into smaller chunks and we edited out some of the things that felt a little quote-unquote random as the kids might say. Um, which we do sometimes in our episodes are often, you know, we'll edit out just things that we feel like um, the general thrust of the of the interview. But in this case, we decided to keep it all in because we ended up missing these little enjoyable details and digressions in the conversation. So 
We decided to include all of them, which you will probably notice when you listen. And finally, I wanted to tell you that when I first contacted Tyson to have this conversation, he seemed excited about it, but he also seemed dubious because witchcraft has a very negative connotation in his community. And so here we begin the conversation with an effort to reassure him about our practice, which is something we decided to keep in because we thought that you would find that part of the conversation interesting. But even as we discussed it, witchcraft and its its many forms, we found ourselves drifting in the river of the conversation or drifting in the yarn. So one of the things that I didn't get to say, which I had wanted to discuss in that conversation was that, yes, there is a serious problem with cultural appropriation in witchcraft, and to be fair, in all contemporary Western spiritual practices. And the question of how to have an earth-centered or land-based spiritual practice when you're literally a settler or colonizer on someone else's unceded land merits its own episode or even its own show. And that's not even beginning to address um, what that would mean for people, for instance, who were, you know, brought to this land involuntarily or um, people who are trying to reconstruct their practices when they have lineages. I mean, it, it all gets very complex. So we certainly don't get to address it here in the depth that I would like, but I'm hoping that this season we at least begin to approach this But the conversation will remain ongoing, and it's likely that there isn't just one official quote-unquote answer. It's got to be more of a dialogue or potentially a yarn. And Tyson also brings up an appearance that I did on Fox News on the Tucker Carlson show uh, for a binding spell that I and many, many other witches did against Trump, which was started actually by the ceremonial magician Michael M. Hughes. And thousands of witches participated in this spell, myself included. Uh, Just in case you're wondering what he was referring to when he talks about that. We've put a link to that video clip in the show notes so that you can find out more if you want to. In any case, I'm excited to hear what you think about this conversation. Tyson's book, Sand Talk, really disrupted my thinking about land and relationality in such a beautiful way. And as soon as I read it, I really wanted to share it with you. So here goes. How would you like me to refer to you? Do you prefer Dr. Young Porter or Tyson or how, how do you normally? Nah, I, I don't do the titles thing. Just Tyson's good. Okay, Tyson's good. Okay. And um, so how, what do you feel like is important to you in an interview? Like how do you like to do it? I just want to get a sense of like what makes a good interview for you. Well, I yeah, I'm, I'm just curious and I want to find out things. I want to. Find out about how you're using spirit cooking to destroy America. And, um, <laughs> I don't use that. <laughs> it's so mad where you are in the ecosystem of algorithms. And, and um, yeah, man, <laughs> especially, you know, with all the kind of, you know, all the baking that QAnon does and the, the sort of gotcha moment um, that they got you in there. Um, I, I'm, I was sort of more interested in that um, than anything else. In the QAnon? I don't know anything about QAnon except that it's 
Well, that's that's exactly what your friend Trump said. So you, know, <laughs> so you think company. it's very suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you must know that most people who are viewing your your um your your video um you know of the binding spell on Donald Trump that they, they were hate viewing that and um and passing it along and say, see, see, this is what they're doing. You know, they're eating babies and yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I didn't do a lot of baby eating talk in the in that interview, and I feel like I was trying to to communicate exactly that we're not doing that. But also, um, you know, I just felt it was important to stand up for what I believe in and yeah. just say well, what I, I think mean, maybe is that's true. That's a, a good place to start is where you where you're from and and your tradition. You know, so for me, I'm I'm here on Bunurong country, but I'm three thousand. Uh, kilometers south from 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 my homelands, mm. uh, far north far north Queensland in Australia there, and um, you know like I answer to people, so I answer to elders and you know who have had had to talk to um, you know to get permission to do this this one with you, uh, particularly in my community um, because of the way uh, witchcraft and sorcery is viewed, which is really negatively, and and we can get into that. Yeah, and, I'm excited. Um, I, I think to what, what they were mostly concerned with was um, with a lot of practitioners of Western sort of uh, New Age style magics kind of stuff. How much how much appropriations going on? So they were more concerned about you know me not sharing any sort of details of anything with you that that might be stolen, and whether or not you were the kind of person who steals things. And you know, so I went in there after having found out a bit about you and. Um, and finding out you, you seem to be pretty strong in that kind of Wiccan tradition or in a tradition of recovering uh, recovering knowledge, which is from your hemisphere and from your place, and that you're recovering knowledge that's been, um, that's been sort of wiped out, colonized, exterminated, genocided, etc., and that you're, um, that you're recovering um, aspects of that and as, as much of it as you can. And um, I don't know, they, they kind of had some sympathy for that, still wary, but um, went, well, you know, you go ahead. Um, it'll be a good yarn, but uh, watch yourself. Don't say anything you shouldn't say. You know, get your protection up in case she's going <laughs> to, you know, uh, curse you or something, you know, if you say the wrong thing. Mm. Um, yeah. So I, I've done all that. I've got all my things. You, <laughs> you've got all your ducks in a row there. Well, yeah. yeah so the Old people up there, like police and that, you know, all that dreaming um, space around and all that kind of thing. But I, I don't think I'll need it. You seem pretty nice. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm a pretty, I mean, most of the time I'm a pretty nice, pretty nice person. I mean, we all have our moments, right? Like no one's perfect. But yeah, I feel like I try and do right by people and everything. But um yeah, I mean, I mean, we've got we, we'd have we, we have I mean, our, our community would have like the same attitude, you know, as the alt right would have towards, you know, like a binding spell. You know, there's no nuance between, you know, a binding spell and a, and a curse, for example, you know, in your tradition. Well, not, not in the tradition so much as in, in the community, you know, like uh, I'll get more into it later. But the are old people who sort of uh, handle all these things and. You know, um, and they kind of do that, and they don't talk to everybody else about it. But you know, um, you know, most of us just the idea is, well, all of that stuff is dirty, and and we don't go near it. That's just for a few old people, and everyone's terrified of them. <laughs> and you know, sometimes even you know the person who does that doesn't even stay in the community. But when they come through, you um, you know, everybody's watching. 
you know, watching out. Um, you know, in our culture, you're not allowed to go off on your own. Sort of ever, you're always with people. And if you do go off on your own, that's viewed as suspicious, you know, that you might be trying to go and uh, curse somebody or, you know, do black magic or something. And you need to get a lot of, a lot of trouble for that. So, um, yeah, it's like the worst thing you can say about somebody is that they're doing black magic. Wow, <laughs> and I can see why of, you'd uh, be nervous. And there's not much, there's not much nuance there. So you know, I that's I have to be careful because it, you know, this could look to some people like, oh, he's like you're doing black magic talking to her, you know? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So I've got to make that really clear right from the start. This is all protocols stuff at the start of our yard, <laughs> but I, we still need to know more about you and you know where you're from and. And you know how you came into this uh, law, this body of body of law that you're working with, etc. Yeah, let me well let me comfort you a little bit about my practice. So um, I grew up in the tradition of reclaiming, which is, so I grew up in this practice, um, which is a West Coast tradition in the United States um, that really comes from uh, like it really originated around the '70s, but. It was drawing from multiple traditions um, that go back to, for instance, um, what's called fairy magic, which is spelled F-E-R-I, and then like Appalachian folk magic, and then um, more ceremonial or Wiccan, Wiccan practices that go back to mid-century England. Um, and But the thing is, um, you know, it is like witchcraft is a reconstructionist practice right because mm, the the pra- the the practices that were land based you know the 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 re- sacred relationship to the land for my people which are like the the Norse and the Celts um were broken over thousands of years um and so that they were lost and so there's no way to like there's no way to return to them they were oral traditions the they were really actively destroyed, and so, um, you know, the the work that that we're doing here or have been doing for the last few generations is is trying to reconstruct that. But of course, according to our tradition and practice, magic uh, is always specific to the time and place in which it was re- produced. So it we can't go back to some like pre-industrialized Celtic idealized world like we're we're well you're not in that place anymore yeah, either we're so not there the, I'm there seventh might be generation of Druidic law coming yeah. through but that Druidic spirit um you know it's different where you are exactly and so there's an, there are elements of creolization that have to happen there so in the same way as the uh you know Afro-Brazilian you know people there had to like um draw elements you know uh, from their from their root culture and the magic that they do that they did there um, they had to bring that into um, into alignment into balance into dialogue with with uh, you know the indigenous land where they were and they had to allow that to sort of reshape the old gods reshape the old energies and and they had to align with place and have permission you know to do that from the indigenous peoples there and actually come into place in that way and I guess, um, yeah, that's interesting. You know, you're tying together, especially from that Appalachia. There's, um, there's, there's, you know, there's. It's very specific, uh, bespoke energies from <laughs> that place. Uh, from what I gather, yeah. it sort of makes a lot of people terrified of, you know, Appalachian folk traditions and and then everything that went before that. Yeah. Well, 
there's also um i guess you would call it a saying or like a a, a knowledge a truth in our culture that um you know magic is basically whatever the dominant culture considers this being outside of religious practice, but it's no different than any other religious practice. It's just that when you're on the inside, you you call something your religion, and then you say everything that's outside of that is magic or is sorcery or is not religion. Um, but then it just depends on who's on the inside and who's on the outside. Like, I'm, I'm really curious because it sounds like... Um, your your elders and other people in your community are maybe dubious about magic or sorcery and yet do they not are there no like to me when I think of magic I think of re-enchantment which is about creating a sacred relationships between all things mm. and so it's well look a lot of the a lot of the rituals like the I guess what you'd think of like around sort of nature magic animism kind of you know, daily rituals that you might do, you know, these are, um, I guess these aren't regarded as magic. They're just part of daily life uh, because we do live in, you know, spirit is everything, you know, as well. So you're living in that, you know, you're receiving communications from that all the time and connections with ancestors and you call out for ancestors. Um, you know, you do certain things. I mean, um, a lot of the, you know, daily sort of, I don't know, encounters with magic is more about having protections against, you know, um, sort of ill energies and um, magics or ill intent, but and, and even policing your speech because, you know, I mean, you might, you know, be on a plane, um, you, you know, with your family there and, and, you know, somebody might, when there's turbulence, someone might sort of make a little half panic joke like, oh, my God, we're all going to die. And, you know, that would be everybody be oh you're cursing us you know like um you know you could say oh don't don't do that you might have a heart attack you know um that's that's like cursing somebody so you know especially when you're speaking in uh, traditional language you know words carry a lot of weight and they carry a lot of power especially if that's the language of that place when you say something it's kind of you know in a way inviting it to happen you know, um, so there's, you know, a thousand things a day, like, um, you know, you can't pass something to somebody through something, for example, that's really terrible. Um, like you know, underneath that, a ladder or would, something or through a window or? Yeah, or through, uh, I don't know, through the rails on your porch, you know, especially, um, I don't know, so if you passed a baby between the rails to pass it up to somebody, that would be really bad. You have to take the baby back through again backwards and then you have to put, you know, armpit smell on that person. And, you know, uh, there's certain objects that some people can't see because they'll make you sick, you know, depending on, you know, by gender, age, you know, initiatory levels, um, you know, clan membership, all these sorts of things, you know, so there's... But that's not considered magic? No, that's just, uh, that's just existence. That's just the spirit of existence and that's in everything. And I know like a lot of other people would see that as magic, but no, the magic side of things is, is sort of seen as, as people manipulating those energies to achieve unilateral ends. Magic is something that individuals do, but you know, in our culture, you can't do things individually or unilaterally. They have to be in a, at least in a pair, 
It has to be at least a pair of you who both agree to be doing that thing or a, preferably a larger group of people. And you all do that together and decide how that should happen. Ritual, ceremony, all kinds of things. All the, what you'd call magic, sort of every day. Um, you know, but just is just normal, you know, moving around in the space um, from our point of view. Yeah, but that uh, magic is a, kind of a dirty thing because it's it's one person doing something like in secret, mm. you know, and uh, even if it's, you know, a blessing or, you know, something, it's still a, a person tampering with a system that they can't understand because one mind can't understand the complexities of a system and all the knock-on effects of that. So you might try and help out, you know, and do something that's going to heal somebody here or do something there, but you haven't considered all the knock-on effects of that. Yeah. You know, you haven't considered all of the, you know, but and you can't do that on your own. You have to actually be combined with another person or a group of people and you're all thinking together. So you have that computational power to um, understand the pattern and that you are working within a system as part of that system. And it's the system that is sentient. So a land-based system or a community that is sentient and that is directing your actions. You know, that's that's how that works. But if you're acting unilaterally, then you're doing magic and you're interfering with a system and that can only ever cause problems, you know, because there are always butterfly effects to everything you do in spirit. There's a thousand butterfly effects. I guess the you know, difficulty so is for, for us um, in the, you know, like in, uh, you know, advanced capitalism, at least in my context, is, um, you know, it's really difficult to do things in community, for instance, um, I love that you refer to your elders and, and sorry, there's a plane overhead, that you refer to your elders and, and um, essentially needing to seek their guidance in order to be able to do um, whatever it is that you're choosing to do or, or you, you ask for their permission or their help. But, you know, many of the people in my community <laughs> um various communities that i have like find it find it difficult to trust our elders there's trauma in our history or there's alcoholism or there's abuse or you know there's all sorts of things that make it difficult for us to be like okay i'm just gonna let you have the keys there um and so i think yeah, because I'm quite quite familiar with that too <laughs> we're, we're not free from that with colonization that's um yeah we have quite a bit of that dysfunction as well but so how do you yeah. navigate that like I'm, I, how do you navigate the trust for your elders in a situation where, you know, they, they have also been traumatized and they might not always be even have access to the traditions that they yeah. would Well, they're not having a, they're not e eating a proper diet anymore. And so they, you know, well, there's mercury in the fish or, and they get dementia and then suddenly they turn on you one day and, you know, you don't know. And, and that's, that's really hard. Because you've got people with, you know, a lot of power who can damage you a lot, you know, and, and for really arbitrary reasons that's just really out of step with, um, you know, uh, traditional law and that. I, I can remember once this old fella, um, he always terrified me, you know, I and mean, you can't look him in the eye, <laughs> you know, because um, he might get you that way, you know. And um, he was making a lot of demands on me and he was teaching me things too, but, you know, it was at a price. Um, you know, and I didn't know how he felt about me. You couldn't tell. And, you know, he's one Sunday morning, you know, I was working all the time and I hadn't spent any time with my kids, 
you know, for weeks, you know. And so I was finally spending time with my kids and he comes around, boy, <laughs> you got to drive me, you know, um, 100 k's that way. I, I, I need to go somewhere. You got to drive me. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not going to give up my time. Once my, no, that's my kids. Uh, but I couldn't tell him that because he'd just say, no, nah, stuff your kids, I need you. You know, and so I just went, ah, oh, sorry, Unc. Um, yeah, I got no petrol in the car, you know. And so he walked off. And so he started walking that <laughs> that track instead because he couldn't get a, a ride. I, I didn't know he was walking that track. And then I had to go out on that track later for something, take the kids, you know, for a swim. And, you know, so I'm driving along. We went past him and he's, he turned around and he watched me the whole way coming. And then he just pointed right at my belly. And then I had about five years of very sick belly, you know. Um, yeah, so I like had five really bad years uh, coming off that, you know. And I always feel like that's really unfair. I don't know. But when I came to terms with it and realized, like, I had to learn things then. I had to, like, act out of my pay grade to try and learn enough things to get that under control and to get help from people to learn that and do that and heal that. And I had to learn how to work my my belly power more and better and at higher levels, you know. And so when I started working that belly power in that way, it came, you know, I, I got on top of it. And I always know when I'm I'm getting really out of balance because that comes back in. That's like permanent damage he's done there. Mm. He's like, you know, um, there's only a certain amount of times your cells can replicate, you know, in any system in your body. And I'm pretty sure he's halved. <laughs> the amount of replications I can have there. So I got to be real. I got to keep that up. And if I don't keep it up, I still to this day, it's what, 15 more years later, I, I can still, um, I still have problems with my belly, you know, um, that might get better as I progress through stages of knowledge and, and, uh, learn to do better things with that, you know, and learn how to keep that in balance. So yeah, you just never know. It's, it's, so this is why there's that suspicion you know, and that sort of terror of, of all these things. Because someone can like, you know, make a lot of trouble for you just like that. But you got to stay in, the main thing is staying in good relation with people. Mm. So I, I really wanted to do this one today because I, I got in really bad relation uh, with another Wiccan. Uh-huh. What happened? I was kind of, oh, I, I was just um, suspicious and aggressive straight away. Yeah. You know, with the sorcery thing, like it was my first reaction. And then I kind of smoothed that over and was yarning with this person, um, you know, more and more. It's kind of a big name in Australia in uh, virtual reality and, you know, augmented reality. And I was like, ah, how much sorcery are you putting into these machines kind of thing? Like really, I don't know, kind of, I don't know, I was being rude. Mm. I was rude to that person when I needed to be coming into a better relation. And um, and then I, I got drunk one night and... Um, you know, he, he emailed me and I answered back, like, you know, how drunk people do. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, it was really rude. And so that was the end of our... And he was, was a wicked. the end of our yarn. He was a witch. Yeah. Like, I think, I mean, I, I, I really offended him, you know, with the things I was saying. And I felt bad about that. I thought about it nearly every day for months afterwards, you know, because I've, you know, connected with somebody, but then that relation is bad. But that relation is always there now. Yeah. And that bad relation, that'll make me just as sick as if he did something wrong. You know what I mean? I do. So you've got to be in good relation. So I thought, no, I'll talk, I'll talk to this, I'll talk to this witch over here and um and I'll do better this time. 
And then maybe that'll give me, equip me with what I need to come back into good relation with him again. I think that that could work, you know, because we have this thing called the web of the weird, W-Y-R-D. Um, oh, yeah. You know what that is? I know that. I do know that word. I, I, I'm i I'm enough of a nerd with Viking lore. Oh, you are? <laughs> so, to know that one, yeah. So that's the web where all things are connected and it's it's woven by the fates, right? The Norns. Um, so the yeah, the spinners exactly. So uh, you know which where witches are connected, and now you're touching that that yarn, that thread. And so I feel like we could do some healing in in our session here together today. Well, so I really want to talk too about your book because that is um, what made me fall in love with your work and what made me want to get a hold of you. And in fact. Um, I was introduced to this by uh, another witch friend, an astrologer friend, uh, Thea Wershing, who's going to be on this the show later this season. Uh, and she told me about your book, and I read it, and I just thought it was really, really beautiful and powerful. And I really wanted to introduce it to to our audience because they they share so many of the same concerns that you bring up. So, for instance, for instance, um, we're really uh, interested in in land based knowledges, practices, relations uh, here on the show. And in Sand Talk, which is your book, uh, you talk about how indigenous folks are invited to sustainability conferences and they give a prayer at the beginning and a dance at the end and they maybe talk about their stories and give drop some wisdom or whatever. But the real power of what they offer isn't really even asked for or known how to be received it's by the by the modality or by the by the framework of the conference itself and and so you were talking about how like no one goes home wiser for having this exposure to indigenous knowledges and it sounds like sand talk was an attempt to address that problem yeah it's not it's not because of uh racism or ignorance or anything like that i just i think that the sort of dominant culture and um sort of ideologies methodologies in the world um it's not very good at process at at recognizing process and inhabiting a process you know so it's sort of largely unable to see through that lens that that's where the knowledge is it's in the process and the relation, you know. Right. Not, not in the thing, not in the shiny objects. It's like you could get an Indian pipe, um, you know, and hang that on your wall, and but there's there's nothing. You don't have anything with that. It's like you know, to be a pipe, a pipe a keeper, carrier, a pipe carrier in in their traditions is, you know, that's a lifelong process that they have to do daily. And, you know, if you're a pipe carrier, you, you can't drink, you can't do anything like that. You've got, there's a lifetime of discipline um, just to learn, you know, over decades, you know, how to how to honour that and, and be with that properly and to do that ceremony and use it in right ways, you know. Um, yeah, but people always w- want the thing. And partially that's an economic um that's an economic thing. It's quite extractive. And that must annoy you with a lot of the people in your kind of, I don't know, um, in your world. Um, you know, when you're going to your, you know, going to gatherings or being in the sort of community of people who are interested in what, what you do, you must see a lot of extractive stuff. And 
you know, people buying the smudge sticks and um, sort of, you know, getting a tie-dyed shirt on and, you know, a dolphin fridge magnet and a crystal and run around like, you know, with special auras and their own fabulous individual spirit work and all that stuff. It must, I mean, I don't know. It must frustrate you a little bit. I bet, I bet you roll your eyes on the inside all the time. Well, I'm really excited that you brought this up because I, I actually really wanted to talk about this this relationship between objects or things and relationality itself because I do feel like that's such a fundamental part of my own practice and it sounds like yours as well. But I feel like I don't really roll my eyes at people who are like, oh, I love that wand or that pentacle or that bell or I'm really into this cauldron because... I feel like in our culture, it's a really sad and heartbreaking that essentially, you know, people are hungry for the sacred. They're hungry for sacred relationship, but they have no idea how to do it because they weren't taught. And and they're actually like discouraged from having it throughout their entire life and childhood. So they just don't know how. They don't know any other way in but to be like, well, I like this bell or this smoke stick or mm. whatever you know mm. this fumigation wand and where it doesn't really matter what the thing is because it's more about the process exactly like my, my understanding of of a lot of your tradition is that you know um you know the the traditional things from before after women became sort of uh domesticated and and a lot of a lot of that practice was driven underground then you know you shifted into different objects the ones that you were forced to work with every day like the broom the cauldron, the you know what I mean? Yeah. So you you started doing it in that domestic sort of hearth sphere. And it didn't matter what the objects were, it was the process of working with them and and the meaning that the metaphor that comes with that, you know. Well that's what was so exciting to me when I read it in your book, because for instance, like it took me a really long time. Like even though I was brought up practicing witchcraft, my mother's a witch, for instance, it took me a really long time to understand that you know, witches work a lot with herbs, with, with plants. But I didn't know that it's not just like, oh, you know, use this plant. Here's some mugwort. It's the, the relationship that you have with that plant. If you don't have a relationship with the plant, it doesn't really matter what, what you're doing. It doesn't, it's like, it's like if I don't have a relationship with you or I don't have a relationship with Carolyn, my, That's it. like, I can't just go up and say, here, will you do this thing? I mean, I could try, but it's not going to really work. It's weird, isn't it, to live in an extractive economy and that regards your relationship with Willow, for example, to be weird and that you might strip that bark and, you know, decoct a painkiller from that, that that would be suspicious and weird and evil. But a pharmaceutical company taking that same bark and then synthesizing a compound, you know, from that and then mass producing it and, and doing all kinds of damage in the world and, you know, testing it on the population and all that sort of thing. That's not evil. That's good. <laughs> it is a um, an upside down world we're in. But but you had said um, that earlier in your life, as you when you were a young man, that, um, for instance, you were teaching art and you were teaching like Aboriginal culture and you were making didgeridoos and boomerangs and things like that. Um, but you were saying that it was like performing your culture and then you, it took you, it sounds like a long time to understand that it's not about the object itself, but it's about your relationship to the culture in which it was 
it exists. It's about all of the all of your relations. Is, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's it. That's it. And it's that's the tricky thing to navigate because you have to um, you have to be you know constantly categorizing and bringing into that dreaming all kinds of things that um, you know because every if it, so everything's part of creation and everything has sentience. Everything has spirit. How do I interact with this Yeti microphone? Yeah. And, you know, and then why is it called Yeti? And what's that Yeti law <laughs> that might be coming through that because it's got that name on it, you know, and it has those symbols, you know, it says Yeti. And I'm like, ah, so I need to understand what a Yeti is for a start, but then also where all the, you know, the rocks came from to make this thing and all the other things and then the... Uh, the ghost slaves of fossil fuels, you know, things long dead under the earth that were burned to make these things. And you, you're constantly trying to come into this relation that is now so complicated that, um, you know, it's it's very difficult to compute all that. And, you know, you make mistakes. And in our way, you're not allowed to make mistakes. Everything you do, you know, in spirit needs to be perfect. And you have to get it right the first time you ever do it. How do you do that? a lot of observation. It's, mm, so not just the quantity of observation, but the quality. So you have to be part of a relational pair. You have to be in such profound relation with the master, I guess, or the teacher or, you know, the person who's perfected that. Yeah, you have to have a kinship relation with them. And, you know, you have a fluid self-other boundary with them so that while they're doing that practice, you are, you are them. Well, it's in, and they are you. So you are two. You're you're two. You're a, but one thing. You know. So you have to inhabit that completely. And then um, the first time you ever do it yourself, it has to be perfect. There's no trial and error. That's um, it's shame if you do something the wrong way. You know. So you have to do it just right the first time. So I I had to make a really big law poll for ceremony, and it was a big ceremony, and like two hundred people all there watching. You know, and that was something, a really important part of the ceremony. All the old people, all the old fellows there, he, 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 like, I, I had to, and then I had to enact that part of the ceremony that I'd never seen before or done before, you know, but I had to do it just right, you know. What happens if you don't? What, hap- if, what happens if you don't is, is shame, <laughs> Um, shame's a, a really big thing and it's it's different from that individualized guilt um, of sort of modern cultures you know shame is something that's felt collectively um, and that is administered collectively you know and it's a very hard thing to be under that blanket of shame you know it's um it's nobody wants to feel that but that's the thing that prevents people from overstepping and you know trying to be too deadly before they are <laughs> You know. So it sounds um, like it's a way of slowing down people's actions. Yeah. Yeah. And well, particularly interventions. You know, it's you can't intervene in a system. You have to belong to that system and you have to belong in a group of people and you need a group of minds working to know how to move in that system, you know, to be part of it and to keep yourself part of a sentient system all the time. And um, once you separate yourself too much as an individual from that you know then you think spirit's telling you to do something but no that's just your ego that's just um you know or some demonic thing you know 
So it, so it's a way of, of preventing people from getting delusional or getting caught up in their ego or getting caught up yeah. in some other spirit force that they yeah. don't well, know what it is. Keep, shame is there to keep narcissism in check. Right. You know? And I don't know, there's so much in contemporary world, though, where we're all encouraged to, you know, have no fear. Don't don't be embarrassed to make mistakes. We learn from our mistakes, you know. Um you know, like if you're learning a language, it's like, oh, don't be afraid to get it wrong. That's how you learn. And it's like, well, no, that's how you learn to say it wrong. <laughs> you better say it right the first time, you know. <laughs> right. So I really want to learn Mandarin, but I'm I'm too scared to. <laughs> I'd have to go there and sit and listen for a couple of years first, I think. Mm. But so in in your book, you talk about how Aboriginal society was designed over thousands of years to deal with the problem of creation, that I am greater than you and you are less than me. That narcissism, yeah. And, that's, and that's always been around. We didn't invent it. It's just, uh, one of that, it's just one of those tricky seeds in creation that's there. And it's there for a reason. It's that trickster. It's that... Um, you call it emu, right? Ah, just from my cultural point of view, because totemically I'm associated with Brolga, and Brolga and Emu always have that fight, and the problem is, you know, Emu is the troublemaker, it's narcissist, all that sort of thing. But other people, Emu people don't see it that way. <laughs> oh, 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 wait a second. I had understood I had understood that Emu was kind of like a coyote or trickster or like a Promethean figure. Well, it's it's kind of like that, but it's also a very nurturing nurturing figure to a lot of people. Um, for a lot of people, Emu teaches men how to be real men. You know, because Emu's the the mother lays the eggs and then takes off. You never see her again. Ah. And it's the man who sits on the eggs. And it's the man who raises those chicks. You know. Um, so I guess it depends on, <laughs> on your point of view whether or not um, it does. It does. But all these conflicting stories, they do, they sit. You know, we don't contradict each other or argue about it. These things sit together comfortably. You know, it's a mosaic of stories, which, in the aggregate, you know, forms the truth of creation, which is, you know, it's a polyverse of meanings and stories. You know. Well, it's interesting, even being in conversation with you like this, I feel like I'm experiencing what you refer to in your book as nonlinear time and like nonlinear storytelling, because it's it circles and it goes back on on itself and then it winds into a different direction and the level of complexity and um, nonlinearity is... Is a is a is a foreign and, and intriguing feeling for me, and um, and I'm, I'm so I'm being pulled in all these different directions about all the things that you're touching upon in this conversation. Like for instance, thinking about how Aboriginal culture developed in order to handle the problem of hierarchical thinking or what someone or some group thinking they're better than everybody else or even anyone else and then there's this idea that you bring up also in your book about how marginal points of view are really important and how everyone does, has a voice and there's then this notion of like collectivity that 
seems to be very important that you are also addressing here, you know, that um, yeah. that you can't make an individual de- but decision. I, I don't, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean, you know, this, I don't know, this new concept of centering marginal voices, the idea that we have to center, you know, voices of people who are marginalized and all that sort of thing, um, you know, because in our way it's the marginality it's the marginality that gives that thing its power and its um its usefulness, you know. So if you are um, you know, so if you're planting seeds, you know, um, you plant you know ten bright, big, round, shiny seeds, um, but you also plant uh, one shriveled one, one little shriveled misshapen one that came from a, a weirdly growing plant. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? You plant that one too. That doesn't mean you make your entire crop out of those shriveled seeds. That would be insane. But that shriveled seed, it's important. You know, it's a mutation. It, it's carrying, you know, it might be carrying a genetic sequence that's really important to cross-pollinate with the other plants that will make them better able to deal with a new insect species that comes in, you know. And it might just be that that shriveled plant is the only one left standing when a storm comes through. Because you know? it's different, because it, it's it's ready for yeah, the unexpected. Yeah, exactly. And so you need you need you need that diversity, but you need you know I guess the 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 tails of the distribution on your bell curve, you know. So the majority might be in that bell. And that doesn't mean that you've got to skew the whole thing to somehow bring the tail up to the center and go. Oh, we got to center that voice. I don't know if that's the right way to do it. I think that's messing around with creation. But what if those um, voices that have been marginalized? It's the marginality. Well, so I had a Maori um, uh, queer theorist uh, was talking to recently, and you know he really does resent that. He he doesn't want his. Um, his queerness and his queer community um, to lose its marginality because he says that's where all of his genius comes from. You know, the genius of being able to queer something, a body of knowledge or a practice, you know, that comes from that marginality. It comes from being at the margins. The margins are incredibly fertile and incredibly creative. And this is, this is basically, these are the engine rooms always of culture. You look, where does culture come from? you know, for this society? Where does it extract culture from? It takes it from the margins because that's the only place where culture grows. You know, it takes it from um, ethnicities that are, you know, pushed out to the edges and that are struggling. And in that struggle, that's that's where, you know, so most of the world's fashion comes from African-American, <laughs> African-Americans, you know. Um, you know, and, you know, I, I don't know what uh, the culture would look like, this global Anglosphere, this culture. I don't know what that would look like without um, contributions from the queer community. They, they seem to make everything work. Only people who have the energy and the time and the genius to be able to <laughs> do all the best stuff comes from that. We wouldn't be on this Zoom call now, you know. Um, yeah, I'm ready to, to thank you know, the if, queer, if it queer wasn't community. For, for sure. If it wasn't for a, like a, a a gay guy who was having a horrendous life, you know, um, trying to crack a code and invent the first computer, you know, um, just, we just wouldn't be here. You know, Turing was campus campus a tents and like he really got you know flogged, arrested, bloody um, sort of you know really marginalised in his life. He had a terrible life uh, because of that. <laughs> but you know, out of that, 
<laughs> we wouldn't have this computer right now if it wasn't for but that. But that's the very problem, you know? though, is if the voices that are at the margins stay at the margins, then the ones who are at the center get to make all the decisions, and they're going to make decisions to harm the people at the margins. Yeah, that's it. But that's that's not because those people at the center are mean or flawed or that, you know, it's not caused by their bad attitudes. Their bad attitudes are coming from somewhere. You know, their bad, their bad attitudes, you know, are not causing the structures of inequality. They're coming from the structures of inequality. And the structures of inequality are a, an economy that is extractive and growth-based and requires, absolutely requires a caste system to even function because nothing can even be priced in this economy. Now, you look at any economics textbook, it'll tell you the same. Price is determined by limitability and excludability. It's whether you can limit the supply of those things so a lot of people are missing out and then, you know, that you can pinpoint who you're going to exclude from that. So there's need of a caste system. And sometimes it shifts who's at the bottom of that and individuals can move about through the caste system, but communities aren't allowed to. And that was put in place with a curse straight after the French Revolution. And I think of it as a curse. And unfortunately, that curse was the uh, that all that business around the rights of man and establishing that rights of man for a start is part of the curse you know that became our human rights framework which is fundamentally flawed by that curse um because you know that curse was was based on a lot of discussions where they were trying to decide whether or not jewish people were allowed to have human rights and eventually they decided, well, Jewish individuals are allowed to have human rights, but the Jewish community is not. Well, who, who is... So they can rise as individuals if they assimilate, but they can't rise as a community. And so right there is the curse that's the flaw in uh, the human rights framework all around the world now. You know, so there are a lot of structures in place that people aren't even aware of, and they are kind of like curses. They operate in the same way. There are algorithms out there operating like curses that are positioning this program right now in a constellation of things that's supposed to lead people through a rabbit hole. They might start out looking for astrology and you know self-help and self-actualization, but then they get led straight down that rabbit hole, you know, um, through I don't know into anti-vaccination and from there into some pretty horrendous fascist. <laughs> stuff so you end up with like new age people who are really gentle and loving they end up uh, being funneled into you know neo-fascism and they don't know how they got there and you know it's these algorithms that are acting like curses well yeah because our whole culture is set up to make it so that you can't it's inescape like the harm is inescapable committing harm is inescapable and you're caught in this web of it no matter which way you go and it sounds it seems like you know in your book you speak to this a lot which is um you know that that you come from a culture that is you know what 10 20,000 years old as far as you know but that it's been interrupted so much by colonialism it's not, that it's it's a lot more than that it's it's like uh, 100,000 wow sort of at least, but we would just say forever. Right. You know. So your your culture has existed forever and has been evolving over 
hundreds of thousands of years. And then um, within the last couple hundred has been severely disrupted and genocided and destroyed and fragmented. And then so, you know, in your work, you speak a lot to this, um, you know, trying to maintain it, trying to reconstruct it, trying to rethread it. While simultaneously, for instance, you talk about, but you also, you know, you've got a PhD, you live in the city, you have to, you have to pay your rent and you have to like support your family. Like you're, you you can't step outside of it. You can't just be like, I want to live back. I I have to stand on other people's heads in this caste system, you know, just to be able to feed my kids. You know, it's, um, we all have to come under it. If you don't, you're homeless. And, um. Exactly. But so, so in your book, you talk a lot about land-based cultures. And so can you, can you tell us a little bit about the difference between a land-based culture and whatever it is that we have now? Well, I mean, it's, it's basically, um, you are behaving like your landscape, you're following the patterns of creation in your bioregion, you know, so each bioregion is a unique entity and a system, you know, within itself. And that system might comprise a few of what modern scientists call bioregions, you know what I mean? But that territory has its own character, its own, its own sentience. It's a sentient system, you know? And um, so you're coming, you're, you're part of that entity. And as such, you're following the patterns of that landscape of everything that happens in those ecosystems. So the structure of your society is totemically related to the animals and plants and entities, even down to the winds and the lightning and everything else that occurs in that place and when it happens. You know, so these determine the rhythms and patterns of your life. And so they therefore also shape your economy you know, how you trade, how you share, how your economic system works there, but also then how that comes into relation with the economic systems of other regions, you know, and in a sort of a continental pattern, um, and even uh, up into Asia with trade, up into Asia and New Guinea traditionally as well. You know, so your your economics, your governance, your society, everything, it's, it's one thing. These aren't separated from land. You know, we, we've separated these things into a stack of different abstractions uh, now in this modern world that do not, they do not, they're not responsive to landscapes. And that's why you have them, uh, you know, all these cycles of boom and bust and nothing really working in concert together. And, you know, all these different departments that can't communicate with each other and bureaucracies that don't work and relationships that don't work right through the society, you know. Uh, yeah, they're not in step, they're not being fed, you know, through that landscape, you know, so that that's basically how that works. And so, you know, your oral culture comes through that, but it's not just verbal, you know, it's lots of uh, images, movements, um, objects, you know, practices, all these things, you know, all contain and carry knowledge and transmit knowledge and produce knowledge, uh, constantly so knowledge production is a really big part of that economy um and it is an eco nomi you know it's very intensely land-based and everything is coming from the land all the time you know um so the land can't be capital that's leveraged for debt and you know um 
you know, derivatives, etc., <laughs> into infinity. You can't do that. Uh, and when it is, it creates enclosures in the landscape that prevents that free flow of information, spirit, knowledge, matter, energy, resources around that system. And those systems become entropic and they die, you know. And so, and with it goes your cognition, you know, because most of your meaningful cognition and memory and all that sort of stuff is spatial. You know, your neural scientists will tell you that. So, you know, you have to be in place and responsive to your map and territory all the time, you know. Uh, otherwise, your brain doesn't work properly. Um, your mind doesn't work properly. And that comes out, it's not just in your skull, that comes out into all your relations, that web of relationships, whether it's wrong or right, you know, with uh, every entity in the landscape around you. Um, you have to make that right. And so any intervention you do, it has to be right for that entire system of relations. And so therefore it takes time uh, to do things the right way. You know? Yeah. Well, because it sounds like what you're saying is that you, what we might think of as our brain as a discrete thing inside of our skull is not, that's not real. Like our brain in our spirit, our bodies extend into the land itself and that it's all interconnected and that there is no separation between my mind and you know my the trees in, in my yard and the walls and the all of it is connected and that then if we sever that if we sever those connections we lose our ability to to think to yeah to be fully cognizant like we we become sick yeah well, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you really, I don't know, with your practice, with your spiritual practice, you really do need to see everything, you know, in that system. And, you know, you can't act out of your pay grade or into a system that's too complex, you know, um, or it won't work for a start, or you might do damage. The other thing is um, part of that system that you're intervening in, you need to know what other actors are in mm. there as well. Who else is doing work in there? for the work that you're doing. I'm, I'm talking about your practice now as a practitioner, you know. So, for example, if you're doing um, that thing you did with Trump, you know, um, were you considering all of the, um, um, you know, whether it was intentionally magic or not, but all of the, uh, all of the curses and, um, and, and all of the sort of symbols and metaphors and, um, the processes of like the almost cultish processes of building those followers and then where all that attention and energy was being directed. It was very big and very complex um, thing that you were tackling. Well, it wasn't just me. There were a lot of, I, I didn't. Oh, uh, there were a lot of people doing There were a lot, lot of people it. doing ah, A lot of people doing I wasn't the one who thought, who started Sweet. it. Michael M. Hughes was the one who started I was also, um, I was also, and I don't know if this is part of your tradition, but from our tradition, it might be something that uh, is helpful, um, is that when you have an image of something, then that image is part of the spirit of that thing. It actually takes, you know, like um, Voldemort in, in the Harry Potter. <laughs> I don't know if you ever read I Harry didn't. Potter. You know, he had <laughs> I didn't. Well, he had these things called horcruxes, uh -huh. and they were objects where he divided his soul into all these parts in case he died so he could bring that back, you know, but it made him weaker. And it's kind of like that. So with a sacred object, you know, if, if you have an image of that, then the image takes part of that away. And even for us now, 
with our images being replicated infinitely in the cloud, that is really extracting a lot of spirit from us, mm. you know, all the time. And you have to be constantly trying to <laughs> function like that, which is really hard. But no, so you say you've got a sacred object. If that comes, you know, I mean, if I lifted this thing that's out of shot right now and into the shot, then that would like halve its power immediately because then that shot is, that's recorded, that image, and that's in the cloud. Um, and, and the more that's replicated in the, in the crowd, in the, in the cloud, the less, the less power that has that thing. So that, um, when, when you, when you showed your objects that you were using for that, um, binding spell on there, it immediately took quite a lot of the power out of that. But anyway, as you say, though, it was a lot of people doing it, um, so with that, that collective mind, you might have just been across all of the elements of that and there might have been enough people not, not taking photographs of those, those things or anything else. There might have been enough of that to make sure that it was, um, it, it did something maybe. Well, I think the difficulty is if, in fact, it is true, which I'm sure on some level it is, that if you photograph an object or disseminate it on the Internet, that it takes its power away. Um, or halves its power instantaneously, you know, then we're all, I mean, pardon my French, but then we're all fucked, aren't we? Because like we're in this world and it's not going to go away. So we have to learn oh, how to, well, it's not going to go away, like immediately. Those satellites won't stay in the sky. They're, they're getting weaponized now, the satellites. They'll be taking each other out and they'll be dropping like flies. It, this won't last. Well, sure, I'm not right. You know, the re, there aren't the resources anyway to keep this going for. It's too definitely long, unsustainable. Too but here we are in the midst of it, so we can't just. I guess from my perspective, witchcraft is about what, um, it, what works right now, like working. With yeah, what working is. with you what is what is context. what yeah. is, and we don't live do in it. a world where we can just be with the land. Mm. Well, that. That's why I'm engaging with this. Like I, I feel it damaging me, you know. Right now, this, um, I don't know this cyber, this oh, cyber right, world. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know what I mean. All, all this media, you know, I, I'm engaging with that, and I could feel it damaging oh, yeah. me. Um, but at the same time, you know, if I'm doing this work, then I need to be doing it in the world, and this necessarily is part of the creation and part of part of the world, you know, in 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 this this place here now, yeah. So I have to be doing that. Exactly. <laughs> I could separate myself from it, but in separating, that's damaging my relation, my relatedness anyway, and I will be damaged anyway. So that's why that unilateral decision, um, you know, to create and keep growing this technology, um, you know, uh, can we do it? Yes, we can. So we will, you know. Well, whether or not we want to, that's we That's why that's so damaging. Yeah, because it, it means that everybody has to be damaged by it. And participates um, in in creating that damage. So, like I, for instance, yeah. Instagram is the bane of my life, and yet it also is how I earn my living in a lot of ways. So I can't just walk away from it, even though it bothers me. <laughs> I have to do it, and I know that it's damaging me, and I know that it's damaging the world. But I, when everything's everything's poisonous, and you got to eat some poison, and you got to get good at it, and you got to exactly. Adapt. I mean, there's dioxin in every single mother's breast milk on the planet right now. Does that mean we're not going to have breast milk anymore? It's like, well, no, you still need that. It's just like that baby got to get some poison. Exactly. We have to we have to transmute our poisons into medicines. That's that's another magical practice. 
yeah. Pharmacon. Yeah. But so tell me, I'm going to just switch all around. We're just going to skate all around here. Um, I was really curious about um, song lines. So you say that song lines are maps of story carrying knowledge along the lines of energy that manifest as law in the mind and land as one webbed throughout the traditional lands of the first people. So what's your understanding of ley lines um, from your cultural perspective? Well, ley lines are like veins, a power. They're like um, ways that the earth has of transmitting life force throughout itself. And, um, but I don't think, like, I don't, ley lines aren't really a huge, big part of my practice. You know, they're like implied, mm. you know, yeah. but um, from what I understand with this idea of song lines, what intrigues me about it is this idea that imagination, storytelling, song, ritual, ceremony, dance is all woven into the consciousness of the landscape itself. And that there are, it's about, it seems like it's about creating this symbiotic relationship between the human beings in the land who are acting as like the caretakers or the, the, this sort of brain function, the neurological function of the land. Um, and so from what I understand, like, for instance, there would be a specific rock or a mountain range or a tree or something, and it would be part of the song, right? It, you would have memories attached to it and stories that would be folded into it or braided into it. And would they, they would interact with the stories of other people. Yeah, they, they are entities, yeah. Their entities and they're part of that song and that 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 time, um, you know. So basically, it's not just lines of energy. Like, yeah, that's part of it, um, but those currents are, um, you know, they have, um, you know, they're, they're also storied, you know. So they're, they're, they're lines of narrative as well, you know. And but they're also a map, um, but they're also, you know, a living thing that you know is all of these entities and their travel and. And where they are there, that rock is, is something that's in that story, you know, all the time. But not just on its own either, because your sky camp is always facing your earth camp. And it's mirroring, always mirroring the landscape, the stories in the sky and the stories in the landscape. And as the stars shift, that, that indicates seasonal shifts in the landscape as well. And then there are different parts of that songline that are relevant and activated, you know, in that different part of the season you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. But also, so if you are sitting and you're singing, you know, part of that song line and you're bringing the stars into it, but then the smoke of the fire uh, goes across, uh, goes across those stars, then that also comes into the song in that moment. So it's not just a fixed thing, forever thing. It's like how you do it in that moment is what's there. So if night birds fly across, then the night birds become part of that as well. You know, and these are ancestral communications and communications from a sentient landscape, you know, occurring all the time with winds and, you know, and pretty much everything that moves and everything that is. It's a voice. It's yeah. A, it's a collective yeah, it's, um, song. That's it. That's it's it. the it's, song that the earth sings. 
yeah, and I guess a song line is a way of you know focusing on a, a process or set of processes uh, that guides how you move through the landscape. And these are also roads. They're also just roads. And there are a lot of the highways that exist now have been built on top of song lines because these were the tracks that were, these were the paths and roads that were already there when the colonists arrived. So they drove their wagons along that and then they made it wider and, you know, eventually it's highways, <laughs> you know. Uh, so you can drive for hundreds of miles, you can drive for hundreds of miles on a highway that is a, um, you know, a rainbow snake dreaming story, you know. Is the song still there? Yeah, yeah, the song's still there. Everything's still being kept. You know, in some places that are devastated, then it's um, it's a nearby region or even sometimes a far-off region that, that's holding and keeping that stories uh, ready for that uh, resurgence, you know, when people are ready to receive that and start keeping that law again. Um, you know, everything's being kept. Um, and, I mean, it's a, it's a phenomenal feat of memory. And you, you, your human brain can't do that. But a mind that exists out in that web of relations, a mind that exists in all these song lines, you know, the mind of an elder is, you know, thousands and thousands of miles of song line. Um, and it exists on those song lines as well, you know. So it goes beyond the body. And that mind is a supercomputer that can hold all of those terabytes of, of information and knowledge and ceremony and story and pass it down that way, you know. Um, yeah, it's 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 very powerful, um, and and you know when you're in the presence of somebody who has that, you you can feel it, mm. and you, that knowledge comes into you, you know, bits and pieces of it. It changes you just being near those people. Uh, if you come into relation with them and form a link, you know, a bond, um, you know, or you're related to them, even that that it passes through you as well, you know. And it comes to you and then you pass that as well. You know, it's got to be constantly moving. You don't accumulate that knowledge. It's got to be evenly distributed throughout the system, the community, and the tracks and everybody. But there's so much knowledge in a song line that um, this old auntie I know, um, she lives in, in, in Western Australia, but her grandfather was blind and three times in his life, he made the journey on foot on his own because he was a very high-level knowledge keeper, you know, senior lawman. He made the journey on his own, walking all the way from Western Australia to Uluru at the centre of Australia. So go from the coast right to the centre on his own, just following those song lines. And he could sing his way there as he walked. But that also contains all the knowledge of everything he needs to find the medicines he needs on the way, he can find the food that he needs on the way, even though he's blind. <laughs> he can find it through the information in that in that song line. So he's walking and singing every day, and um, yeah, and he eventually gets to Uluru, um, to that big rock, and he does his big ceremony there with the old fellas. Then he turns around and goes back on his own. Um, so yeah, it it is a, a map that contains everything. You don't even need eyes to see to be able to. Um, you know, navigate the landscape and your life in just perfect ways. Um, if you, if you or anyone in your clan masters that, you know, and that's the good thing. If somebody knows that and they're in your clan, then you all have that. If that makes any sense, it yeah. does. So there's no jealousy, jealousy for knowledge, or you know, wanting to gain more knowledge for yourself, or self-actualize. 
it's like your entire clan is real proper actualized you know just with the collective knowledge of that group and because you do everything together it's um it's always there so you don't have that hunger for self-improvement or um <laughs> for you know uh to be more gain more have more you're very satisfied with whatever your status is in that group because you belong it's it's a yeah it's so so much less stressful um <laughs> than all of the other spaces we have to inhabit now. Well, yeah. so I don't want to keep you all night because I know you're a busy and important person, but um, I... Uh, no, I, I'm really not. <laughs> but, um, I am busy, but I'm, I'm not... In, I'm, I'm really, like, I have to keep telling people that I'm, I'm, I've got quite low status in my community and I'm, I'm quite satisfied with that. And I've I, heard that I'm, about I, dogs, that um, they don't care where they are in the hierarchy of dogs they just want to know like they're how they well, are that, a lot of that's a myth anyway based on some bad research oh about, is that true you know, alpha males and stuff that's actually it's more of a parental and you know grandparent kind of thing yeah. that happens which is kind of a normal you know <laughs> thing that happens in uh, most social mammals um, and that it's not really a hierarchy as such. It's, right. It's, you know, yeah. I've heard that too about like the, that, um, that special alpha wolf in Yellowstone who like the ideas about the alphas that they're like the most badass, like going to fuck you up dogs. But in fact, um, they're, they're the alphas because it's, um, they make all the other wolves calm. So it's their presence that calms the rest of the group and brings out the best and helps them harmonize, helps them feel yeah. connected to one another. Well, that's what, um, that's what, you know, um, older generations do in every community. Well, ideally. You know, it doesn't mean they're, they're the biggest and the baddest and the boss. Um, <laughs> it's just, um, you know, it's just, there's a difference between power and authority. And to have authority is is not to be a boss or wield power over others. Usually, like the proper structure for mammals is that some members have authority, you know, uh, due to their experience. And um, and power, though, is distributed throughout the group mm. quite evenly, mm. you know. And that's what I see when I, when I look at wolves. Um, yeah. And... <laughs> Yeah, they have alpha males, alpha females. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening out there in, in the world. People trying to, um, you know, sell like these formulas and, you know, way, uh, I don't know, these, these sort of uh, self-help things for how to, how, how to make it, you know, for young men to buy these, these processes of how to become an alpha male. Like, <laughs> you know, there is so much of that going on right now. And they're so frustrated, these poor little buggers. Yeah, they are. Um, they're so lost and they're so alone and they're 30 years old and they've never had a girlfriend. And it's something like 27% in the United States yeah. now of males are living that life. And that's so dangerous when you've got most of your mass shoot, like um, just over 50% of your mass shootings are done by people who previously have had a conviction for violence against women yeah. or domestic violence. Not surprising. You know? So in that sort of tinderbox, you know, to be throwing in this myth of an alpha male and then selling people products about that that aren't going to work and are going to make them even more frustrated, you know, because, oh, women love alpha males. It's like, well, nah, <laughs> nah. And that, that's a curse. 
There's a lot of curses you know, out there. Yeah. It's when people unilaterally, you know, put out these little frameworks or ideas, you know, and, and they're, they're structured. If you look at the structure of these things and the package of how they're put together and the sort of the cultish patterning of how people are inducted into these knowledges, then you see that kind of magician thing going on there, you know, that that kind of magician um, that is not pagan but is uh, the way civilization twisted magic to make it about control, to make it about power, to make it about dominance, to make it about compliance, you know, and that, that's sorcery. And that's the dirty stuff that, um, you know, we have these balances and checks there in our culture to prevent that from happening. These little unilateral narcissistic sort of curses that are put in place, you know, for people to try and gain a competitive advantage over others. Sure. You know, to gain followers, to gain, you know, etc. cetera. Um, yeah, we resist that really strongly. Um, <laughs> but it's getting harder it's wise. to do that. I mean, yeah. it's wise to resist that. And like in a culture, but that's the final question that I have for you really is about, you know, given that our culture is as it is and we live in the situation that we live in, for people who do want to establish the connection to the land, they want to belong to the land, they want to they they want to be a part of it they don't want to live outside of it and and yet you know all of our cords have been snipped and we're all floating in outer space like astronauts who've been like pushed out of the spaceship how how from your practice from your how would you advise that? i think like, i think except you- except that migration is part of um is part of a natural pattern and that you know God didn't put everything into these little zones and say zebras are there, cactus is there, you know, um, Indians are there, you know, um, and this is what Pakistanis look like and how they talk. You know what I mean? Um, that things are more fluid than that and always have been, you know. Uh, that big message in my book is if you don't move with the land, the land will move you. Landscapes are constantly shifting. Ecosystems migrate, you know, 100 to 200 metres a year, you know, um, so you've got this permanent dwelling there, but the land, the land's moving around it. It's flowing around it all the time. You know, if you care to slow down and have a look, you know. So accept that migration occurs and that, you know, species migrate, you know, across ecosystems. People migrate around the place. It's part of our patterning. It's part of what we do, you know. And that when you come into relation with a place that you're coming into, you know, I guess it's that same action we talked about earlier with uh, Afro-Brazilian uh, creolization, you know, of, of their their magic system there. Their, it's not even magic. Magic's that civilized thing. It's it's different from that. It's, it's that way of working with spirit and working in spirit with the real energies that are, you know, in, in the land and all around you all the time and in your systems, being becoming part of a sentient system. That creolization is a really big part of that. And I mean, I can see that. I can see it in the Appalachian folk tradition, you know, quite a bit. They're, they're obviously responding to the spirit of that place, uh, sometimes in weird ways, but, you know, that I can't understand. But, um, you know, obviously, you know, with proper practice, you know, that, that, that that's actually come out of something there, 
and that there's also a lot you have to recognize how much of that practice has been influenced by the involuntary settlers that have been forced there over the last 500 years you know so the, your um an african american po- population has brought a lot of practice you know across that has kind of you know quietly assimilated through things um that is sort of you know pretty uh, yeah i mean most of the amazing cultural stuff that's come out of america but you know also a lot of the you know traditions and folklore and stuff like that it it has developed out of that from even vaccines came out of that you know yeah i knew about that came out of you know some of their west west african slaves why do you all have that scar on your shoulder you know (laughs) um yeah and then um and they didn't believe him from a long time until someone from Turkey was doing the same thing. And they went, oh, maybe that's a thing. We'll give it a try. And then boom, vaccines. Um, you've got a Band-Aid on your shoulder. That's what made me I think do. It's my, I got my second vaccination. Hey, <laughs> I just got my second vaccination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so, um, well, so, so Tyson, when you go back to your people, will you send them love from the witches of, of America? Because we appreciate them. <laughs> I'll call them. In, I'll call them in a minute. But I won't use that language, which means something completely different in our way. It's a <laughs> yeah. It's a well, you can thing. you can you can um, say from the enchantresses and enchantrexes and enchanters. Yeah. Because because our practice is is about enchantment, and enchantment for us means um, reestablishing sacred connections with the land that you do through ritual and ceremony and through deep kinds of knowledge and no, song we, we just and dance. we just call that people yeah but we that's, don't have that word in the beings. english language <laughs> it's just it doesn't human. people doesn't have the same meaning Look, over here one one day you know aligning with all those energies and being part of the world and and um you know practicing uh within it in ways that bring things into balance and harmony that won't need to be called anything Again, because that'll just be what we do. Um, I look you know. forward to that day. I look <laughs> forward great, to helping it? helping um, midwife that day, or participating in that. But so, Tyson, how how should people find you? Like, how can they find out more about your work and your practice? Oh, just I don't know. I ask people to stop finding me, and there's too many people finding me. I can't okay. deal with it. It's it's too much to do. Too much um, finding you. Well, they could read your too book. Many, too Sand many relationships talk. that I can't I can't honor properly, and I find yeah. myself being rude to people by having to just um, rush through things, rush through communications. You know, they've made a connection with me, and and I can't honor that obligation properly. Um, I I didn't expect that the book would be read by that many people, and um, you know, and I would have written it differently if I'd known that was going to happen how would you have written but it then that wouldn't happen if i wouldn't have been so intimate i wouldn't have been making it as something that makes a relationship with somebody so strongly um because if that's really unilateral lopsided asymmetrical which is what it's going to be if i'm like you know oh, this brilliant author or whatever and someone's a reader and you know but they're feeling that connection because that's the way it's written you know, but I can't respond equally and properly to them. It, it makes it really hard. Um, yeah, I find it really upsetting. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, yeah, and I, I don't really need to promote or anything like that. So, you know, I'm not really interested in marketing or branding or anything. I'm just interested in uh, having these yarns with people. 
interesting people like yourself, Amanda. Well, I mean, I identify and relate to what you're saying because I, I also wrote a memoir and um, it's very, very intimate and it is a really unnerving feeling in some ways, like um, when people have kind of seen very deeply into your soul and because it feels very intimate, then often when they meet you, they feel like you also know them that well. And um, that can be a very um, disorienting, dysphoric feeling, although it is really beautiful to connect with people in that way. And I, I believe in the intimacy of writing and, and you know, I, I did that deliberately um, because I was writing to the spirits of, um, like, essentially, the book is about the underworld and the spirits who are caught in the underworld like versions of myself like as a young woman who was caught in the underworld and trying to like hold the torch for her and help her find her way out and anybody else who was there as well and to come to them and like hold their hand and say I'm with you in this place yeah just don't eat the pomegranates don't eat the pomegranates don't look back (laughs) don't Don't look back back. (laughs) call for it call for help call for Hecate or Mercury or (laughs) That's my limited understanding from the, you know, children's nursery rhyme versions of that law. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you have an underworld in your cosmology? No, not really. It's it's not really a heaven and hell. Your um, you know, your spirit is in various parts that go to different places. You can go to sky camp, and then your ancestral spirit goes back to a place in the land, and it's um. It keeps coming through and cycling through that over deep time. Yeah. So um, that's no matter what you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm very grateful to have been in conversation with you. I'm really grateful that you took the time to come be with us and, and um, we're willing to brave um, the... The witch. The weird witches. <laughs> witch, banner, yeah. banner. yeah. yeah. I'm really glad. Sorry, that that's you're probably really upsetting that. for you. It's it's funny to me, but it, it won't be upsetting. Yeah, for you. I mean, I think. I mean, you're not making fun of my genocide, so I shouldn't do that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I mean, there are some things that do get a little bit old with the yeah. witch stuff. You know, like every time I do an interview, it's like the first thing people say is like, "Oh, you don't look like a witch. You don't have a green face. They don't have a word on your nose." And I was like, <laughs> "Get okay. your nose. Get your nose on." Yeah, I'm like, "Oh, uh-huh, that was funny." Like the yeah. first hundred yeah, times I heard that, but like, <laughs> I'm not interested yeah. in talking about that anymore. Well, so. my kids will be really sort of blown away. Yeah, kids like witches. Kids like their favorite book. Well, they they like Megan Mog. Oh, Room on the Broom. They got like all these little kids books got nice witches in them. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of good witches out there. Witches are good, doing it. some good work in the world. But they all got the big nose. They do. I mean, my nose is. And that chin, you know. that horrible chin come around, eat them, eat them in the middle. Of <laughs> yeah. I can see why, why you're, uh, how your other witches looked ascance at you, but. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna overlook those comments. <laughs> well, that was lovely talking to you, Amanda. Thank you so much for being with us, Tyson.
Hey, all. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tyson as much as I did and that you go out and grab his book, Sand Talk. It's an excellent read. Next week, we'll be discussing the Four of Pentacles, which is all about economics and creating stability with our special guest, tarot reader, Liliana Perez. So please do tune in and don't forget to register for my moon ritual tomorrow. If you can't make it, you'll still want to register because I will send you the replay. And again, that's by donation. Link is in the show notes. Hope to see you there and have a great week. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Subscribers to our Weird Circle at the Jupiter level get workshops, community, bonus content, and magical support throughout the year. We really do hope that you join us. In the meantime, if you love our content and want to keep us on the air, please do take a moment to give us five stars or leave us a sweet review on iTunes or share your favorite moments from the podcast on social media. Truly, all of it makes a huge difference to us. You can tag me at Oracle Valet or at Between the Worlds Podcast. Not only does your support help keep us on the air, it helps baby witches who really need this content know how to find their way to us between the worlds. So thank you for being here and thank you for helping other people find their way here as well. This podcast is hosted by Amanda Yates Garcia and produced by Carolyn Pennypacker Ricks. Our icon was created by Maria Minnis, aka Tiny Parsnip, and our graphic design is by Leah Hayes. Thanks for flying with us.